0: and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 2. As always, I am your host, Laura Boyle. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the things that monogamous people can learn from polyamory, from non-monogamous philosophy, and maybe from having tried being non-monogamous and deciding it's not for them. I think a lot of us know people who have at some point or another, experimented with non-monogamy and then decided that maybe this wasn't the relationship style that was most aligned with their lives. Uh, And instead of coming at this from a place of judgment or a place of sort of deciding for them whether or not this was the right choice, let's look at some of these sort of fundamentals of polyamorous philosophy and of non-monogamy advice and non-monogamy skills that hopefully people are acquiring while they're trying this out that can be really well applied to monogamous relationships. Because as we've talked about on the blog and a little bit on the podcast too, most polyamory advice isn't polyamory specific. It's just good relationship advice. So obviously there is stuff here for you are listeners who are primarily folks who are either in polyamorous relationships or curious about them, but also maybe for some of those of you who have decided that non-monogamy isn't for you. Or for your family and friends who aren't a hundred percent sold on the idea of polyamory and are wondering why the heck you're trying to do this. Maybe today's episode will answer that a little. My guest today is an ASEX certified sex educator a psychotherapist, and relationship coach named Dr. Jolie Hamilton, uh, who's here to talk with me about this, because it's sort of the focus of her recent book, Project Relationship, which is more specifically aimed at folks who are exceptionally busy and not necessarily finding time to prioritize their relationships. But since most of her coaching practice focuses on folks who are experimenting with non-monogamy or have been non-monogamous and are trying to balance that with their busy lives she seemed like a really good person to talk about this with so without further ado here is my interview with dr jolie hamilton
1: so thank you so much for joining me today jolie can you share for my audience who may not know who you are a little bit about yourself
2: oh sure okay a little bit about me i am Where do I start? I'm going to start with mom. I have seven kids um, and I've been polyamorous for over 12 years now. And I did it so badly at the beginning that I decided to do all of my PhD, master's and PhD program, studying my way out of my own mess because I did it all bad at first.
1: (laughs) That sounds like ridiculously relatable content. I definitely studied enough to then get to the point where now I teach about it because I'm also the person who's like oh no I've made mistakes I need to repair them by learning everything about this
2: exactly exactly and I didn't know how my previous I'd been working as a sex educator in a bunch of different circumstances and I didn't realize that all of that was sort of funneling me in this direction of like how can we create optimal relationship health you know, like, how can we do that for all kinds of people who want all kinds of relationships? It turns out I've been doing the back work for that for decades. I just didn't know it until I fell down the stairs, so to speak. Of <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. And so in general, uh, I invited you on because I thought as somebody who's worked in all these different contexts, you were a great person to talk about on this subject of what are the things that we often only talk about amongst ourselves in non-monogamy that really work pretty well for everybody? I know that it certainly seems self-evident to polyamorous people because it's, I think at this point, my most liked Instagram post ever. The post where I said, good polyamory advice is just relationship advice.
2: Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I, my tagline is that I'm the coach for couples who color outside the lines and that's purposeful because I do tend to work really well with people who identify as being in a couple, but Mm -hmm. people who want to do something a little bit differently too. And so they're, they're in that, that gray space. And the truth is, I'm relationship style agnostic. I don't believe that there is one right way to do relationship, but I believe there are a lot of really crappy ways to do it. And that quote from you is spot on. When I teach people, when I'm guiding people, I'm always working from the premises that I learned when I was learning how to do non-monogamy with grace and care and really a lot of thoughtfulness. And all of those lessons... They all translated. They translated not only to my own relationship when it went through phases where I was, um, for all practical purposes, you know, COVID monogamous for a period of Mm -hmm. time, say, but also to the relationships that I work with where people are figuring out what's right for them. And some of them choose not to go forward with polyamory, even though they they think that that's where they want to head. They go through the process and they realize, oh, you know what? We actually just needed to learn to relate to each other better we don't we're not looking for more than that i think that when we get these skills we're so much more well equipped right to to make the right decision for us and to not judge people who are on any any part of the spectrum of relationship styles
1: yeah for sure i think one of the biggest skills that people assume they're going to gain in polyamory and then realize as they're going through it that actually it's sort of more multi-layered than they thought it was is this idea of communicating because you get into communication and into conflict resolution with your partner and you realize there's just more layers to it than you sort of think about because it's not just sitting down and talking if it were we'd all be great at it instantly (laughs) right we all talk
2: And if it were just talking, anybody who mansplained would be nailing communication. But here we know they're not. So (laughs) I I think that when when people um when people harp on the word communication, they're missing a couple of opportunities um to help their partner understand what they really want. Communication has been so it's been so talked about that now it's Mm -hmm. we're talking about talking about talking. Mm -hmm. What if we instead think about um Well, one of the things I had to learn really quickly, um, the hard way in polyamory was what I cared about wasn't so much communication, but influence. I cared about the influence I felt I had with my partners and the influence that my meta partners had with, like my metamores had over me and I didn't know, like these are, this is a much more nuanced conversation, if you will, because some of them aren't actually conversations. They're not just talking. Their influence is a word that helps me remember that it's bigger than just the words that are said. It's about all of the nuances that are going into creating the relationships that I'm having.
1: Right, and sort of boundaries and spheres of influence and co-creation of this sort of ecosystem that we're all living in, emotionally speaking, where we have to figure out how we impact one another and what it sort of means to be in, I don't want to say communication again, but in sort of constant co-creation with our partners yeah, because we're building day to day what our relationships look like. That's part of why I've ended up embracing relationship anarchy as a label because it gives me a space where even if I only have one romantic partner at the moment, it lets me say, well, but philosophically, I can escalate or de-escalate any of the other relationships I have so long as I'm upfront with everyone about what that means to these other relationships and what that means to my other commitments.
2: Yeah, oh, that's a great point. So when I was doing my doctoral research, I wound up i i was i was studying jealousy specifically, but I was studying it in the polyamorous container. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that I didn't know was going to be so important, but really did it wound up helping me understand that. People sorting themselves amongst their philosophy, like their their polyamorous reason, their reason for non monogamy. It might have been philosophical. It might have been choice. They might feel like they could go either way, um, or it might have been an orientation. And mm-hmm. you know, I get pushback from some people on the idea that it might be an orientation. But I'm a strong believer that we shouldn't be identifying anyone for them. They need to identify themselves to us. So mm-hmm. this these this sort of three bucket system helps me understand when I'm connecting to a new partner and helps me understand myself. Like I understand myself to be oriented toward polyamory, to always have the option to choose my behavior, but philosophically it just aligns with my values. And so knowing where I stand in all those ways and my my research participants too, if they knew where they stood, then they could make sense out of whether they had one partner, but still were like, no, what I'm aligned with this is, this is my This is my way in the world. And it's not about how many people I'm having sex with that. Not only is it freeing, but it's, I I think that's a move toward the liberation of, uh, of sex from the idea that it's, you know, just penetrative or just, just anything put, you know, just anything Mm -hmm. liberating sexuality, liberating our relationships into being whatever they need to be in the moment at the time, whatever we create them to be.
1: Yeah, and taking this space where we sort of force ourselves to take this analytical look at our relationships by being in non-normative relationships, that then means even if at the end of this sort of analysis or the first couple of attempts we make, if some of these relationships end and we're back in a place where we're single or we're only with one partner and we're trying to reevaluate before we sort of re-enter that dating world, and we go, you know even though I feel like I learned a lot here, part of what I learned is that even though my values are aligned toward this idea of openness and this idea of co-creating my relationships and being very flexible about how they work, they might not be aligned toward having the emotional space for multiple romantic relationships right now.
2: Yeah, Whether that's absolutely. a right
1: now or an ever, right?
2: Or an ever, yeah. And that's where, for me, I, I wind up working with people who often find out that there are bandwidth issues that preclude them from being able to to live the the philosophy in a in an out loud and everyday way. Mm-hmm. Um for me, for example, you know, I made the decision not to have anyone other than my anchor partner and I live as, as adults in our house mm-hmm. um, for a period of time because we had tried it and it didn't go well. And we knew that we were we were just going to have to deal with so much bandwidth expenditure. Like it was just going to take so much. And that doesn't detract from how we feel our non-monogamy. But boy, when we first made the decision, yeah, I felt, I felt terrible. I felt like I wasn't following the rules, which is so ironic, right? Because the idea (laughs) is that we're co-creating something that works for us. But if we align too closely with the idea that there's, a right way to do this, a right number of partners to have, or a right situation to have. I think we miss the point and we miss the opportunity.
1: Right. When you come up to this sort of philosophical idea that either you should or shouldn't have certain rules, oh, we're doing this non-hierarchically, so we're not going to have any of these limits or things put on it. And then you go, well, but logistically and... Yeah. Bandwidth wise and sensibly, we can't do this particular thing. It can yeah. feel really sort of shocking and limiting.
2: Yeah. It comes up a lot with people with kids, too, because mm-hmm. and I know in my own situation and I have clients who are dealing with this right now. Um, you have kids, perhaps these children, some of them were parented by people who are now your exes. Maybe you don't have the delicious, yummy co-parenting relationship. If there's some acrimony and some difficulty do you necessarily have even the, the feeling of legal safety of, of living out loud all of the values that you actually have? I certainly mm-hmm. went through periods of time when I felt like, you know what? I'm not sure it would be okay for me to be totally out of the closet. I'm not sure it would be okay for me to do X, Y, and Z. And that it, it wrecked, it, it was really wrecking for my sense of self when i would feel that pull it, it was like it was like feeling myself pulled in in two because i certainly wasn't going to choose to put my children in harm's way but someone else might have thought that it was bad and now i was going to have to make decisions based on what other people were thinking and this is where if i could change one thing if i could wave my magic wand i would have people understand how very normal it is to be in love with more than one person or to have sexual relationships with more than one person all over in all kinds of relationships. Like that happens. And so how we deal with it and what we can do to make that, that normalcy really accepted so that people can be out in a safe way. That's what I would, (laughs) that's what I would do. Totally.
1: So in a kind of more general sense, a lot of people when they're coming out to their family or to their friends or whatever they get met with these same few irritating questions right but most of us when we turn around we just sort of go it's the same as everybody else there's just more of us (laughs) right and i don't have a clearer way to say it than that to most people. Yeah. I don't know if because this is an area that you've specialized in you might.
2: Well, you know, I have a couple phrases that I help people with because often since I'm specifically dealing with people who are moving from like couplehood into something more, mm-hmm. they really they really get faced with, you know, wow, all the all the classics. That never works. We don't understand. I could never do that as if, well, okay, I didn't ask you to, you know. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that I I focus on is, can you explain succinctly? So what's the shortest way you can share that? So I like what you said. It's like everyone else, but there are more of us. Another thing that we talk about is, you know, every relationship is a dyad and more. You know, Mm -hmm. like every single one of us at any moment, if I'm relating to any human, I'm relating to them one-to-one. And in the context that they exist in. Mm-hmm. So if I if I talk about that, most people can understand that they have more friends. So we talk about like how many friends are you allowed to have? And I know that this is really normal conversation in the polyamorous world. But when I have these conversations with people who are really ensconced and happily contained in the monogamous culture, it can be really pleasurably. Um, opening to just have somebody say, yeah, you know, it's like when you have multiple friends and sometimes they have competing needs, but we work it, we work it out. We work through it. And that little, just putting it into their world, like in that friendship world can be enough to help us feel like we're all the same again, (laughs) because we really are so much more the same than different. Um, So yeah, I usually bring it back to friendships. And if that doesn't work, there's always the classic of just saying, well, you know, monogamy doesn't work for a lot of people either. Mm-hmm. We see that everywhere. And so since monogamy isn't working, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna try this and I'll let you know how it goes. And then just stop receiving feedback, <laughs> which is right. the hardest part.
1: Right. With the like that never works.
2: Well, how often
1: doesn't monogamy work too? Right. What percentage I faced of people that do you know question, who are still with their high school sweetheart?
2: <laughs> right. I faced that question when I was defending my um, my research idea. Um, you know, a, a chair of the department stood up and said, you know, that we just, we know that that doesn't work. And I'm like, do you? <laughs> and we've gone into it because my question to him was, what do you mean by work? What do you mean by it works? If you can explain to me what it means by it works, we can now start to have a conversation about. What kind of relationship outcome do you think qualifies as successful? Mm -hmm. And monogamy tends to prioritize longevity over Mm -hmm. all else, over happiness, over how much money you make together, over even how well your kids do. It's longevity. Like We celebrate the 50-year anniversary, even if those two people cannot stand each other. We love Mm -hmm. longevity. And then if you flip that script into non-monogamy and you and you start thinking about what else could we celebrate about relationships, you know, most non-monogamous people are are celebrating something else. They're celebrating complexity. They're celebrating a diversity of opinions and and people in their lives. The thing that I focus on is can I transition between relationships gracefully? If mm-hmm. my relationships can transition gracefully. To, to me, they're a, a complete success. If I can move from lover to friend to co-parent to back to lover, perhaps, who knows? If I can do those things, it's a total win. And that was the argument that sold my professors was, oh, we have to, we have to change the metric by which we're judging success.
1: Well, exactly. And it's this sense you always get the, well, why bother being in a relationship if you're not going to be exclusive as the like pushback? Well, because there are other forms of commitment. Well, what else would be a form of commitment? Well, lots of polyamorous people have regular standing dates, cohabit, have kids, yep, run businesses together, do all sorts I did of all those. Other things yeah. that signify. <laughs> commitment in other ways right and even right. on the longevity front lots of people are together for a fairly long period of time and lots of monogamous people aren't like as right. much as the relationship escalator says that it's only valid if you're together until you're dead fully half of monogamous people aren't so
2: and I second marriages are like seven seventy percent right it's more on the non-go. More, you know the so... more
1: time you the more times you do it <laughs> Because once you're willing to get divorced, you're more willing to get divorced later.
2: Right. You know, you made me think about the fact that when you make a commitment to someone, you can make a great commitment. But if it's not recognized by your community as a commitment, Mm -hmm. then the culture, the society that we exist in probably won't remember that it was an actual commitment. So for instance, I bought a house with my anchor partner be- long before we were married. He was actually married to someone else at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I owned a business with him. I also have run businesses with other people and that's a commitment is a huge mm-hmm. commitment but the culture doesn't know what to do with it. So this is a way that we can we can shift the conversation by actually shifting how we talk to each other, whether we're in a monogamous or a polyamorous relationship or any other label. If, we're, if we talk about the commitments we make to people and we talk about them as priority and, a, and we celebrate them, then we, ch- we shift how we see this. And this is something that
1: can, I think, really improve the quality of our friendships and our monogamous relationships as well, focusing on all of those additional daily commitments that we make to people. Because one of the sort of joys of engaging non-monogamously and of sort of intentionally looking at the commitments that we are and aren't making to our wider networks and sort of what the difference is between our romantic partners, our play partners, our what have we, is that we're forced to kind of pay attention when we make these commitments and make sure that they're not in conflict with one another and make sure that we're not biting off more than we can chew with our commitments and not flaking on people. And if we were similarly engaged when we were still being monogamous, I think there are people who would really improve the quality of those relationships. That's not to say that lots of monogamous relationships aren't really high quality and really happy, but I certainly have monogamous friends who hit the phase of like, and now we're in this doldrums, whatever shall we do about it? Well, take a minute and look at the commitments you're making to one another and renew one of them or start a new hobby and both commit to working on it together and add some spontaneity or add something new, right? Like...
2: Yeah. You know, you're bringing up a great point about what, what does it mean to be in relationship with someone? Because if what it means is signing on a dotted line and then like it's set it and forget it. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that that's what anybody actually intends when they sign on that dotted line, but it is often what we act out. And Mm -hmm. if you don't take ownership of that, it's really easy to fall into a spot where you're either bored or lonely In company and being lonely in company is a miserable experience for most people. And yeah, you're right. The solution's sitting right there. It's to re engage. But I find that often, the longer someone has practiced monogamy, and this goes for people who are who consider themselves non monogamous, but who have just had to effectively be monogamous Mm -hmm. for a while, we can fall out of the habits like we we can fall out of the habits of attending to our partners. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just easier. We're not juggling as many, you know, chainsaws and and flamethrowers. We like we're we're not in that sort of perilous spot of like, wow, okay, I have to pay attention to what I'm doing. And so, over the course of the pandemic, I certainly saw it happen where lots of people they got complacent. Um, even myself, I found myself getting complacent with some of my relationships because I knew I could trust them. My bandwidth had shrunk, and while that's okay, it's not a long-term strategy for for happiness, and it's not it's not something that works for friendships or or even my relationships with my kids or or mm-hmm. anyone in my community, right? So that attention, the attentiveness, is certainly a skill that polyamory forces upon you. <laughs> it will deliver it to your door but everyone can pick that up and go for it.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those things. I see polyamorous people talk about it a lot in the context of like balancing new relationship energy and established relationship energy and trying to make Mm. sure that your established relationships don't feel left behind when you're putting all this attentiveness into new relationships. But then you end up with people sort of falling into these inattentive habits when they've been in a polycule that's relatively established for a while whether or not it's closed or open but in this sense that like no one's actively dating at the moment and without necessarily there being the impetus of new relationships coming into the polycule just sort of focusing on this idea of as our bandwidth shifts and as our lives have changes in them taking the time to focus inward and go well but where in our relationship network is our energy needed is really important
2: right right i bring it back to like where can i celebrate and where can i support You know, those, so those are outward facing energies I can spend. And where do I, where do I want? Where's my desire? And I don't just mean sexual desire. Where are my desires? Because those are the things that we can forget. Like, oh yeah, I forgot how much I love spending time one-to-one with this particular partner, just going for a walk. I can, I can forget those things really, really easily. I can forget to engage in the life I meant to have. Mm-hmm. And so it, new relationship energy, it, it mixes everything up. It, it does create that energy of its own volition, but we are always holding our own energy. Like if I could bring f- a full expression of myself into the relationship, that same level of energy is present because if I'm fully connecting to myself and engaging and bringing myself forward, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, what more? Could I possibly need to bring that at that point? The number of partners is far less important than the engagement. How do we connect to each other? What do we do together? How do we spend our time? What are our priorities and how do we, yeah, balance? I maybe I juggle more than I balance. Yes. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> right. I find for a, for a lot of people who are busy, it ends up being more maybe juggling and balancing although I don't know that I have the hand-eye coordination to even (laughs) pretend that it's juggling I don't know we need to come up with something for those of us with like an extra left foot here right
2: (laughs) right well you're I bet you're a phenomenal emotional juggler though yes like the ability to like
1: emotional juggling than the physical juggling
2: yeah yeah because that that got the that having that person in your polycule like that's a win that person who can handle the quick shifts between like, oh, this person's up, this person's down. In my own life, that that's brought to me often by my children. You know, I have one come in, they've just changed jobs and they're super stressed. And another one comes in and they've just broken up with somebody and somebody else just got into two new colleges. Yay, awesome. And I need to deal with that all in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's no different than dealing with the complexities of a polycule. Um, And this is where these are the kind of anecdotes that I use when I'm trying to help somebody who maybe doesn't understand what it looks like day to day. I'm like, you've probably seen it already. You just didn't recognize that this kind of energy before, but it's around Mm -hmm. you already.
1: Right. It's the same sort of energetic movement as those busy mom moments. It's just not all of them are kid focused. And when you're a polyamorous mom, uh, as I am, some of them are kid focused. Some of them are partner focused. Some of them are co-parent focused. In my case, my co-parent is an ex-partner, not a current partner. And like, I'm sometimes going in six directions at once within, you know, maybe an hour and a half. But at the end of it, there is a moment where I breathe and figure out
2: where I actually mean to be going. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a good moment. Yes. It's a good moment. And I th- think something, when I went back to school, so many people talked to me about, they would tell me what a great model I was being for my kids, how I was modeling, going after whatever you wanted and being ambitious. And it was okay that they were watching me juggle all these things and, you know, working and running businesses and going to school and traveling across the country. Cause I did my degree in California and I live in Massachusetts and mm-hmm. everyone celebrated that no one from my, like, Day-to-day monogamous world celebrated the complexities of juggling multiple partners. Mm -hmm. It's there's a huge opportunity there to simply ask for that to be this is this is part of my growth process. For me, having multiple relationships is part of how I grow and become. It's my individuation container. This is what I'm doing. And having that celebrated and seen as just just as valid and valuable as going back to school or juggling multiple businesses, that's a game changer. That tells me when I'm making new friends, if they can see that and see like, wow, way to go. Nailing it, nailing this process of being engaged with multiple people. If they can celebrate that, I'm like, you are in, we are friends for life. You you get it. You get me.
1: Right. And I find that on top of that, a lot of the time, the polyamorous community does a decent job of sort of taking apart some gendered norms that end up a lot of the time catching women in like extra work Mm -hmm. in a way that makes things a little bit more equal at home. So as we're taking (laughs) on additional complexity, we end up shedding some of the roles that were giving us additional complexity to begin with. There's this very rocky transition period in the early part of most monogamous couples opening to polyamory where... Uh, At least most heterosexual couples opening to polyamory that I've worked with in my coaching, where the female half of the couple is still trying to be the social secretary for the entire family. Including her partner as he's starting to try to date. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) so he's triangulating his date scheduling through her as he's trying to build new relationships. And she's trying to date outside the home and usually getting like more offers than him through dating sites because we live in a terribly biased society. But he'll manage his situation better because she's managing most of his situation and managing more of the chores at home because even when people think they're being equitable most of the time in our society, we're not. And so people realize a few months in that this is really unsustainable. And that they've got to actually pause and adjust and shift some of these expectations. And suddenly they're like, wait, I haven't managed my own calendar in the eight years since we met. I didn't realize when I stopped doing it.
2: Mm -hmm. Have you really
1: made all my dentist appointments for the last however many years? Yeah, honey, I have. And all the kids. And all of these things that have built up over time slowly get taken back apart and given back to the individual who they belong to. And that process is almost equally as important as the process of like remembering that you're your own person that happens with these couples, which, you know, there's that great article that everybody sends around called the most skipped step in opening up, Mm -hmm. uh, that is about sort of individuating yourselves. Right. But like Even more than that, almost, is this logistical process of not expecting wife and mother to do everything for the home Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that I find uh, unfolds early in this process for most people.
2: Yeah, most people, because most of the time we are unaware that we've fallen into this. It doesn't, from either side of the equation, it doesn't feel good to admit it. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel good to admit that we are off balance in our assignment of physical or emotional labor in our households. My, In my intake, one of the first things we address is the where, where are you? Where are you at right now in physical and emotional labor? And everyone universally thinks like, why are we doing this? This is not what we showed up for. Yes, it is. I swear. I promise you it is. And if you don't address it, yeah, it'll show up exactly the way you're saying like that triangulation is miserable, but also likely there will be stuff that starts to come out later. And and it's all subterranean. It's all this mm-hmm. this junk that has been building up for years, and now comes out when there are new dating partners around. And it is so easy to throw polyamory or non-monogamy under the bus, right? Like it all has to do or with to this. Throw win.
1: the metamor under the bus to go. I have a problem with my metamor. No, you don't. Yes. You have a problem with the hinge. Ninety percent of the time.
2: Ninety. Yeah. But you way. love them,
1: and so you want to give them so much credit.
2: And you, and you want to believe that you made a good choice. You want, like there is, there's ego involved in like, this is my person. I chose them. I need them to be good. And if we reverse course and we choose to, I go back is not really what I mean here, but you know, if we Mm -hmm. choose to return to what we thought we had, Mm -hmm. well, we're never going to not know what we know now. So right. whenever this stuff comes out, whether the whether the disparity in the labor split comes out, you know, on day one or on day thousand and three hundred. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. When it comes out, it's always the right time to address it because you'll never be able to unsee it. No matter what you do, you could go back to being the most button up, straight laced, monogamous couple in the world, but you won't be able to unsee the fact that that is how you're running. And unless that is an intentional choice that everybody loves and thrives in, Mm -hmm. you're just building up that resentment that we all know there's no good case for resentment. Nobody's got to like, yeah, here's resentment's perfect (laughs) purpose.
1: Right. Nobody's like, I love feeling resentment. That's not how resentment works. Great. And like,
2: unless- If, if pretty- anybody out there has a resentment kink, I want to know about it though. Now I want to know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I mean, look, like 1950s I household either. is a setup where like, this is your kink and you're doing it very carefully and deliberately organized. Sure. But like- yeah.
2: like built up resentment as your kink I don't think so I don't think so but now I'm curious because you know every time I say I don't think so somebody gives me a story so Mm -hmm. if you hear one let me know (laughs) yeah
1: if after this someone emails I will share but yeah so I feel like that kind of Opening ourselves to notice which norms we've subscribed to more fully than we anticipated is one of the things that really anybody can learn from looking at non-monogamy as an option, whether or not they end up sort of subscribing to it, right? This idea that like there are this huge variety of norms that we end up i don't want to say drinking the kool-aid on but kind of drinking the kool-aid on over the course of our lives uh and then have to figure out which of them we actually mean to be following right so like we just talked about all of these about sort of households um but even within our relationships when it comes to um some of the Uh, The ways we handle conflict and things like this, it can be very much a matter of, like, learning to handle that in more deliberate and newer ways. So things like doing actual check-ins and, like, being intentional about those forms of communication instead of having uh, what I like to think of as circular fights or the same Mm. argument. Yeah. Because... Enforcing ourselves to try to change something, we then have to look at all of those habits.
2: This is this has to be the number one, um, like transformative. I do not use that word lightly because transformation Mm -hmm. has just been so overused. But um, the the transformative power of having to turn your attention to what's actually happening in your relationship is. Bar none, like that, that's the real win, no matter where you wind up, um, you know, in, in your actual relationship styles. When I work with people, I'm always taking I I trained in Jungian psychology, which just means Mm -hmm. I, I take the unconscious really seriously. And I take how you were parented really seriously. And most of us came into our relationships with no good models of really much of anything. I, Mm -hmm. you know, the number of people who I know who are like, yeah, I totally know the direction I mean to be going. It's, you know, like two I've met ever. And even they are reinventing so that it suits them. So when they turn their attention toward, how do we want to do this? How do we manage conflict is a huge, oh, it's, it's just ironic because it, it gets meta. How we manage the conflict about how we manage conflict becomes an Mm -hmm. issue. We have to really dive into how did we grow up? Why would we be looking for safety in the particular way we are? What does this argument provide for us? Because it's serving a purpose, Mm -hmm. especially those circular, those, uh, those everlasting gobstopper arguments that just come back forever. it's it's there for a reason. It's doing a job. I always think anything that's just there, it's doing a job. Same with jealousy. It's there Mm -hmm. doing a job. So what is it for? And I like to help people just attend to it in layers. First, just look at the fact that it's happening, you know, just, just observe it. And then as we get to observe it, now we can start to look at what is it that we want to have change about this? Because usually if we have a a feeling state, if we want to feel differently in these arguments and these discussions and these, in this conflict, we can aim at that. But if we just say, I don't want to have this fight, the fight doesn't care about that. (laughs) It's just not helpful. Yeah. What is this
1: fight a check engine light for here? What do we want to feel differently about it? What is it sort of signaling for us? Right. like with jealousy is it signaling underlying fear or anger or something like this that we can then try to find where that is coming from that we can work with
2: right and is this an argument that we're actually going to get rid of you know i'm i'm not um i'm not actually convinced that all arguments are going to go away or even need to but if we have an argument and and i i use this in a really broad way So if I have a particular thing that's going to come up for me over and over again, it's mine It's Mm -hmm. it's my particular way of being in the world. Probably I was either born with it or it was, it was part of me before I was verbal, if it's going to keep coming up, how can I make it? More productive, less painful? How can I ask for support as that part of me rises to the surface and wants to engage in the fight? How can I perhaps make this fight either shorter or just more effective? You know, I still have arguments with my anchor partner. I've li- known him literally my entire life. I met him when I was an infant. Um, he knows me, he knows me really well but that doesn't mean we don't have the same fights we do. We just do it more effectively. We're more efficient about the time spent and we get to the base need met sooner because we know what the fight is for, what its purpose, why did it show up? Why is it here? So for me, I, I personify these things. I start to see them as like, well, this is like a critter and it wants something from me. What does it want? Okay. If I can start to get to know it now, if I can meet its needs, And my partner can also attend to it and be like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. It's not going to just disappear. Now we're on the same team and we have something that we can work with every time it comes up. It's just a smoother way to be in relationship. And I think about my own childhood. My monogamous parents would have done really well to know what my mom's big arguing monsters were actually looking for, but they didn't know that
1: right if it's about something that you've got a bunch of sort of little t traumas attached to that are building up to this thing figuring out is that about attachment is that about what reassurance you need is that about lowering your response to a particular trigger what do you need there and how can your partner help you reach that state more rapidly instead of escalating it
0: Or you for them, depending
1: on who exactly and where the trigger is. Because some of these fights are just, when I have the biggest of these fights, actually with my current partner, we don't have a circular fight yet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just keep those crossed.
1: (laughs) Right. Like we have, we have periodic conflict, but we don't yet have circular conflict. But my most recent ex and I had a circular conflict that was literally just that I would get triggered. And his response to my reaction to being triggered mm-hmm. would then escalate me, and yep. then we would escalate each other for about an hour before either of us would realize what had happened, yep. and then start de-escalating. Right. So, yes. learning to shorten that cycle is the goal there.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's and when you when you learn, this is where I say you know every relationship is a system. So you get to interact if you're the partner who is having that, that trigger come up and, you know, is sort of the catalyst that you're the, you start the flywheel. Cool. Mm-hmm. Let's deal with your trigger stuff. Let's get into that work. But if you, if you have a partner who happens to be more of the, the, per, the starter, if, if stuff tends mm-hmm. to start on their side of the fence, that doesn't mean you're helpless. Mm-hmm. And that's where my own anchor partner struggled a lot. He struggled with, he had a lot of learned helplessness. He, mm-hmm. and so when I would go into emotional Struggles, and I went through over a period of a few years. I I lost everyone in my family of origin, and just everything went wrong. It was big, huge thing. Yeah, great big things. So he was watching me go through that, and the learned helplessness stopped him from tending to the one thing he could, which was Mm -hmm. his reaction to my reaction. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we got a hold of that, he realized that it was literally as simple as and he's a big guy who, so he can do this, scooping me up sometimes literally picking my feet up off the ground and just like letting me feel like I was safe. That was it. Everyone was dying around me. I needed to feel safe for 30 seconds. That was the game changer. And now, you know, it's been years and it feels different. And now he can do it with a, you know, a simple touch to my arm. He can like, right, you're here, you're safe. Mm -hmm. And that helps me then engage all of my tools. And this is where I think sometimes we we can almost over-focus on how it's, you know, you got to do your work. I'm a big believer in, I do have to do my work. And mm-hmm. it's great to be able to support your partner in a, in a really lovely way and just say, I see you and I see your struggles and I love you. I love you because you have struggles. And I think
1: a lot of the time, one of the weaknesses of our very autonomy-focused look at how polyamory should go in big scare quotes is that we take this position of like everyone's got to do their own thing and then don't co-regulate as much as we could or don't take the opportunity to support one another in these things because a lot of the time if it's what your partner needs because everyone's needs are different but if it's what your partner needs The bear hug or the weighted blanket or the verbal support of, I am here and it will be okay, helps more than, why are you doing this? Right. Can't you stop?
2: (laughs) Or, hey, you're doing that thing you do. Right.
1: You're doing the thing again. Yeah, I know I'm doing the thing again. I wish I weren't.
2: Right. (laughs) If I knew how to get to it before then, that would be great. And there are a few of my own like big triggers that they, over the course of years of being loved well, of being, Mm -hmm. of being really held, not just by my anchor partner, but by friends, by my, by my analyst who really held a beautiful container for me Mm -hmm. over the course of those times, some of them really did ease and I can address them spot on for myself. Great. Awesome. And I am at an age where I realize, you know, I'm not sure that that's true of every single thing, and I'm not sure I want it to be. For me, relationships are my individuation container. They are the way that I come to know myself. So I I am both relating to myself, but I'm also always looking out at what's going on in my relationships to inform me about my future path. Like, where am I heading? And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't i think that that focus on that total autonomy it's yeah. also just not practical it's not what most people are doing
1: right for me that's a lot of like american toxic individualism yeah from my point of view like humans are social creatures and that doesn't mean that we all need to be like preparing to go live on a commune in the woods somewhere but it does mean that like recognizing that within your relationships seeking reassurance or some co-regulation or some help is perfectly normal
2: right, right. and if it and if we wanted if we want to escape that, what exactly are we trying to escape? what what are we trying to undo? And that's where I'll ask my kids when you know they're old enough to be getting into their own relationships and I'll ask them, you know, who thrives? who makes money off of you yeah. not seeking co-regulation? Who yeah. is getting what they need? And it always comes back to the same thing. It always comes back to some part of this individualistic, capitalistic society that does thrive when we feel isolated. Mm -hmm. And this is a way that we we can subvert that. We can absolutely subvert it simply by learning how to ask for that support rather than demand it, right? So we can really walk that line and learning to ask for the support and learning how to co-regulate with with your individual partners like in those ways that really are juicy for a particular dyad i love that part of relating i don't i don't mm-hmm. think there's really much more delicious than that i mean sex is awesome but have you learned to co-regulate with a lot of people it's pretty yummy <laughs> <laughs>
1: And, like, one of the great things about polyamory for me is that you can build those close relationships with friends and with partners without feeling like there's this monogamous notion of emotional cheating that, like, I've never believed in, but I keep reading about on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so somebody must believe in it. Like... I, you know, yeah. I had one cousin of mine explain that they believe in it a couple of years ago. And I was like, really, is this a thing now? And then I keep reading about it online. So it must be
2: it shows sort up. of
1: a thing in the world.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I'm doing a, a repeat study of my jealousy study with a monogamous mm-hmm. sample and mm-hmm. yeah, all of them have,
1: it they just all kind of acknowledge me that it sad exists. for all of them because like that ability to do that with your friends and not just your partner, because sometimes our partners have their own issues that are in the way of them being the person who can do that with you at that moment.
2: Right. Right.
1: And so not having those options open to you is hard, but everyone can at some point come to this place of like being available for their partners. And so I think it's an important thing to acknowledge and to like look at that within relationships this is one of the great things being able to seek each other for reassurance and co-regulation and comfort
2: yeah i mean that's where i if we could just focus on the pleasure that we get from connection yeah perhaps we could desexualize some of this like i like i I, platonic friendships awesome (laughs) and and where exactly is the line because my own definition of sex is really broad, right? Mm-hmm. And so what overlaps emotional and physical and uh, like soul level connection, sometimes I'm in a platonic friendship where I'm like, I don't actually know what this relationship is anymore because we do all of these things. We don't have sex the way that like a general society member might define it. Mm-hmm wow, we overlap and we support each other in these ways that are just as intimate for me as any more typically sexual contact is. What a delicious thing to have in your life.
1: Well, right. And lots of people like to do things like label those as queer platonic or like, you know, consider different labels for them. And other people go, does it need a label? I don't care anymore. This and person this gets is important tricky. to me.
2: Yeah, this person's important to me. And and even the word queer platonic. So I identify as queer, but I have straight friends who are like, oh, that word freaks me out because I'm like, I don't want to take that label. It's not me. I'm mm-hmm. I'm straight, cisgender. I just don't feel like I'm part of that community. It feels like I would. Be. So now they're like, do I need a label for this? And this mm-hmm. is where I've actually had friendships end over this, oh. where the confusion over what is this? It feels too good. It mm-hmm. feels too good. I, I can count on you too well. Like we're, we're too able to do this. So it must be romantic. Ah, hmm. must must it, or, must it? Or my next question would be, what's romance then? Because if romance is that I send you flowers when you get a new job, then I guess it is. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to. I'm always going to send you flowers when you get a new job. That's that to me is like the much larger conversation we could be having that's really exciting, which is. What's the difference between intimacy that overlaps these, these different parts of us? You know, why does it matter?
1: Relationship anarchists will say nothing and right. that you all should be relationship anarchists. But I'll get off get that a t-shirt.
2: So <laughs> I would happily get a t-shirt. I just don't know enough about the political ramifications of anarchy to have ever claimed it. And I, I'm like, I'm game to learn. I'm always game to learn.
1: So technically relationship anarchy doesn't claim all parts of political anarchy and the relationship anarchist manifesto is relatively limited to interpersonal relationships it has no so i have ten- read
2: that yeah right. and that that makes sense and it does it allows for a uh, a really nuanced conversation yes. every relationship has to be a nuanced conversation mm-hmm And Mm. it
1: allows for people to choose to only commit to sexual monogamy if that's a position that they feel is necessary in their lives. But it encourages the idea of because you're building individual commitments, the ability to build them as diversely as you prefer to.
2: Right. So there are a lot of
1: non-hierarchical polyamorous who could fall into this umbrella.
2: Totally. Totally. And then we get back to that philosophy thing. So like currently, are you practicing a hierarchy, but you philosophically don't align with it? Is it, you know, what's the difference between that, the the label and then the practice of, and oh, it's, right. it's, it's, it's Does so yummy and complex.
1: matter? Like, yeah. or is only prescription the thing that you're going to fight about?
2: Right, right. This is where we get to really get off on the language of it all.
1: Exactly. As a nerd for semantics, I really enjoy it. But I think it gets a little tiresome for everyone else. I do try to keep the podcast interesting as much as possible.
2: (laughs) And I wonder if it it winds up making folks who are monogamous or who are just at the edge, they're teetering at the edge of like, well, maybe I at least want to know what this all is. I wonder if it becomes almost frightening. Like, you know what, that's just a lot. I don't know whether I want to take all of that knowledge on. Mm hmm. And so maybe the simplest way to say it is just, it's going to be whatever you make it to be. Like
1: It is a choose your own adventure story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I like that.
1: Yes. Polyamory is choose your own adventure. Kitchen table polyamory is choose your own adventure in committee.
2: <laughs> sure. Which means everything goes a little slower. And that was definitely, that's definitely my experience. Managing so- committee meetings. <laughs>
1: So thank you so much for coming and talking to me. We're coming up on time now, Um, but I really appreciate you coming in and chatting with me. Uh, Are there any projects you have coming up or anything like that that you'd like me to share?
2: Well, you know, the the big thing that's going on for me right now is I am constantly trying to talk to people about jealousy because I think that it has lessons for us. So if people are interested in that, I would love for them to, to follow me, on find me on Instagram or go to my website because jealousy is a conversation that everyone, no matter what relationship structure you're in, we should all be talking about it a little bit more than we currently are.
1: Perfect. And I've got those links in the show notes for folks if you're looking for them. So thanks again for joining me for this.
2: Thanks for having me, Laura.
0: So if anybody is looking for those links, they're in the show notes. Uh, Jolie is on Instagram at drjolie__hamilton, and her website is listentojolie.com. But in general, for some sort of housekeeping stuff for us here at Ready for Polyamory, uh, you can, as always, find us at the blog at readyforpolyamory.com. I've got a class coming up later this month uh, for, about polyamory and parenting, um, which is going to be on April 23rd at three in the afternoon. That's a class that's actually going to get run twice. If you purchase it, you get access to the recording, um, but I'm doing two live Q&A sessions for it. One is at the end of that session at three on the 23rd, and then again on April 30th but much later at 11.30 p.m. Eastern time so that our friends on the West Coast will actually have maybe put their kids to bed by the time I do the Q&A. So it'll be available and up for the whole week in between so that folks will have had a chance to watch the class at some point in the intervening week before that second Q&A. So that's on my uh, Ko-Fi shop if you want to get the tickets uh, and the link for that is also in the show notes. If you're not following me on all of the social media, I am on Facebook with my Facebook page, Ready for Polyamory, and our Facebook group, which is at facebook.com slash groups slash Ready for Polyamory. There's about 600 of us now. Come and join us, and, you know, we have some fun sometimes. (laughs) And uh, I'm on Instagram and TikTok as at Ready for Polyamory. Um... And, you know, sometimes I post funny stuff on TikTok, and sometimes it's educational. But either way, it's me being sort of a charming talking head. Uh, And about half the time, I am just in my pajamas because I'm unwilling to put effort into video production. Despite this, a Cosmo article said that I am one of the top ten polyamory TikTokers you should be following. And I agree. So, come follow me. Uh, And I'm on Twitter at LauraCB88, uh, which... I kept my personal Twitter, and I'm kind of glad I did. It's a funny mix of things about my real life, things about polyamory, and things that I think are funny retweeted. So, follow me on all of the socials, look out for next week's podcast, which is going to be here, Um, and have a great week.